if freedom exists, it has to exist in a body. And all of these, we call them mental disorders, is fascinating to me. I'm like, but all of that is happening in a body. <laughs> all of that has some kind of somatic posture or orientation. And the mind is really the story about it, which is important to unpack and explore. But the place where one can do work with it is through the lens of somatic experience. Welcome to Jacqueline Explores, the podcast where we explore science, somatics, and social change. I'm your host, Jacqueline Shea. I am an embodiment coach, facilitator, researcher, and science communicator. After 10 years in public health and health tech, my own trauma healing journey brought me to somatics. In this podcast, I'll share the cutting edge science and somatic frameworks and tools that change my life and will help you feel better, move through stress, heal trauma, and live the life of your dreams. But that's not all. I'll also highlight why and how most individual issues have systemic roots and the social change work being done and needed to create a world in which we can all thrive. Let's explore. Today I'm chatting with Valeria McCarroll. Valeria has her PhD in psychology and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is a writer, teacher, and guide. Immersed in the field of psychedelic work for over a decade, her interests lie at the intersection of non-dual wisdom traditions, somatics, psychedelics, and social and transformative justice. Valeria teaches on psychedelics and somatic psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She stewards a body of offerings in her private practice called Somadelics. She lives in Northern California with her husband and daughter. When not synthesizing and refining liberative systems for deconstructing the patriarchy, she enjoys playing outdoors and creating beauty. You can find Valeria at www.valeriamccarroll.com. Welcome, Valeria. I am so excited to have you here today and for this rich discussion that I know we're about to have. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Well, you you work at quite the intersection of some interesting topics. And I mean, oh my gosh, in the past few years alone, psychedelics has become so much more in the mainstream. Um, and, you know, it's predicted in the next year, um, MDMA will become FDA approved and, and other substances are in the pipeline. And so I'm just curious if you can orient us what are psychedelics? What do they do to our brain, to our consciousness? What are some of the use cases for mental health care? What a great way to enter into this conversation. You know, I was reading something the other day about the Michael Pollan effect that has happened since Michael Pollan published his, his book, How to Change Your Mind, where psychedelics went from this sort of quiet thing that was happening in the psychology world to all of a sudden their uh, global mental health treatment. Um, and... I love that you opened with this question because I think sometimes we don't actually consider what they are and, and what they're doing to us. So to me, I can only share my perspective on it, which isn't to say that I have the be all end all perspective. I just have one. Um, that word psychedelic uh, was coined in conversation between Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond when they were trying to figure out a name for this class of substances that 
produced particular kinds of subjective effects in the body, primarily visual hallucinations and, and auditory distortions. And they went back and forth and back and forth. And you can read about their exchange, which is hysterical and very like cis white dude trying to up each other in their word creation. And um, eventually they landed on this term psychedelic. Psyche, you know, from the Greek meaning mind or soul and delic meaning to manifest or reveal. So psychedelics are a class of substances that have particular effects on the body. Um, they act on our brain in, and our, our nervous system and our somatic experience in, in a bunch of different ways. The way I like to think about them um, is that, you know, our brain and our nervous system, our brain's function in our body is to process information. You know, and and in doing that, part of its function is to reduce unnecessary information or information that would um, distract us from staying focused on our tasks at hand. So, you know, we climb into a car and within, even though the seat might be cold in three minutes, we've forgotten that the seat's cold. And, and that piece of sensory information is no longer something we're thinking about or orienting to. It's part of what the brain does. So the brain acts like a reducing valve. If we think about ourselves, you know, in this field that has all this information happening all the time, that's part of what the brain does. And, and what psychedelics can do is kind of widen the aperture on that reducing valve. So information that we might have ignored or suppressed or not considered or just not really noticed before um, suddenly becomes much more available to us. So we talk about psychedelics precipitating an altered state of consciousness or uh, an expanded state of consciousness. And, and in those states, um, we're having a very different experience of the world. Uh, that's like a very broad definition of what, of what psychedelics are. And, and <clears throat> you know, what has become exciting today or part of the reason I think psychedelics are coming into mainstream view in, in the way that they are is um, because of the, the impact on the brain as relates to mental health and, and wellness. Um, so maybe in that, maybe I'd like to just specifically speak to sort of the two psychedelics that are, are really coming into mainstream view, which is psilocybin, you know, most of us know as magic mushrooms and MDMA, which those of us who were in rave culture would probably know as ecstasy. Um, MDMA will likely be legalized within the next year for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. So do you mind if I nerd out with you about this for a minute? Great. <laughs> yes. Um, because, because, and, and I say that because, you know, there, there's a long history actually of psychedelic use and psychedelic research. And, and there's a large cultural misconception that psychedelics are harmful and dangerous drugs. And, and I think it's helpful to contextualize that there was a body of research that was emergent in the sixties before psychedelics were made illegal. And most of the movement towards criminalizing these substances was, um, not based in the reality of the science of what these substances do to the body, but rather more about a political agenda. But it, it, it trained us well in culture, and so we're still working to undo that conditioning. 
So it's helpful to think about when, when one is learning about these substances, what they can do to the brain. So maybe MDMA. Um, so MDMA is a really interesting, to me, a really interesting substance. It's a, we call it an intactogen or an empathogen rather than a classical psychedelic in that it doesn't often have the uh, visual distortions that some people experience and it doesn't have the same um, impact on our ego structure on the default mode network in the brain. But what it does do is it, it opens up our stores of serotonin amongst a number of other things. Give our, our nuts and bolts uh, sort of orientation to MDMA. So MDMA is about to be legalized for PTSD treatment and, and maybe to segue into trauma for a second, part of the reason we call trauma trauma, which I imagine you know this already, but for those of us who are maybe unfamiliar, is, is the way our brain processes a traumatic event. Or, or in that, we don't process trauma very well because our body has such an enormous reaction to the perception of a life-threatening circumstance that it floods our nervous system with all kinds of stress hormones and, and we literally can't metabolize the experience. So trauma lives in a different part of the brain than the rest of our memories do and it, and it lives in our somatic memory. Um, so when we talk about someone's trauma getting triggered, what we're talking about is that something in the present moment has reminded them of that past event and and suddenly they're re-experiencing it. It's gotten activated and it feels like it's here and now, even though it might have been 20 years ago. So the reason MDMA is so exciting in terms of a PTSD treatment <clears throat> is because of what happens in the body when your stores of serotonin get really opened up. And we have serotonin all the time moving in and out of our system and, and our body is always like, well, yeah, a little bit more, a little bit less. And, it keeps us in a hopefully in a, a good middle ground. But MDMA basically opens up our stores and floods the body with everything you got, which is why it feels pretty good to most people. It's why it's often called ecstasy. <clears throat> From a therapeutic perspective, what's really interesting about this is what that does to the amygdala, which is this reptilian part of our brain that's, you know, always kind of looking out for danger and trying to keep us safe from the saber-toothed tiger. And, um, it, it basically negates the fear response of the amygdala or the stress response of the amygdala, kind of mutes it. And so what this can make it possible to do is to go back and process memories that would otherwise be too activating for our system to actually digest. So it's extraordinary what it can do for the alleviation of, of PTSD and trauma symptoms. That one end. And, and then in, in sort of a different grouping of folks, right, the betterment of well people, because one's fear response is very much inhibited, there's an opportunity to self-reflect, to consider where we respond from maybe smaller places of fear or where we've been conditioned into a cultural assumption that's actually fear-based at a very low level, but still fear-based. And so it, it can open up a whole body of intrapsychic and interpersonal work that's incredibly valuable. So sort of MDMA. Uh, you know, and then we're also seeing a lot of movement around psilocybin and, and psilocybin for end of life anxiety, psilocybin for addiction. Um, there, 
exploring now psilocybin for Alzheimer's and traumatic brain injury and all, all kinds of interesting things. Um, so what psilocybin, psilocybin is a classical psychedelic. Many of us associate it with trippy visuals. Um, but part of what psilocybin does in, in the brain is it's working on our serotonin receptors. And, and particularly what, what they're noticing in the research is the effects it has on this part of the brain we call the default mode network. And the default mode network is the part of our brain that's associated with our ego structure. So it's, it's filtering information and organizing it around a sense of self, you know. I am this body, I'm not this necklace, I am not this shirt, you know, I, I am these sensations, and always in the sort of self-other classification. Psilocybin, though, um, acts like a mute button, again, on the default mode network. At the extreme end, this looks like mystical experience, right, where you're in a unitive, expanded state of oneness with all that is. It doesn't really have words, because if you could articulate words, then it wouldn't really be unitive, but, but, um, but in that it can temporarily suppress how we organize information related to a sense of self. So that can have really interesting effects in terms of an increased sense of connectivity, right? To other people, to the natural world, to spirit or God consciousness or however one orients to that. And, and as we're seeing, really helpful in treating things like addiction, trauma, <laughs> end of life anxiety. So it's an exciting time. And, and even, you know, beyond psilocybin and MDMA, there are, um, there's a lot of research happening around ayahuasca for eating disorders, ketamine for depression, iboga for addiction. Um, there's really just a, a proliferation of interest that's, that's happening right now. Hmm. Thank you for that orientation. Yeah, you know, one thing that I often teach folks is that, you know, our brain is a prediction making machine, because if we had to truly process all the data we were receiving, it would be as if we were tripping, we couldn't function, we'd be like, what is this? And it might be, you know, it might be very awe inspiring, but we certainly couldn't drive a car, we wouldn't be very productive. And, you know, there's kind of the analogy that like babies are always tripping, because they don't have these concepts. They don't have like this equals this. Um, and the other really interesting thing is that in our brain, concepts are predictions. Mm -hmm. So so for people who've experienced trauma or those people at the end of life, like it is not just, you know, thinking of maybe someone who's experienced an assault. You know, if they get a cue that is similar, yeah, like you said, they feel like they're in it. And so, wow, how powerful it is to be able to process those things in a way that might be very similar to talk therapy, but to have those, you know, that fear response and that like, I am this or the world is this and this is this relationship between me and other be muted so that we can actually make those leaps and bounds that sometimes we can cognitively access, but our body often can't like fully receive that wisdom in a way that changes the neural networks and changes the real somatic response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I can say for myself, um, you know, licensed as a marriage and family therapist and my introduction to psychedelic work happened as I was in the process of getting my master's degree. And, um, it 
took concepts that had felt very theoretical and brought them into a very imminent somatic ground of lived experience in a way that I noticed, my therapist noticed, you know, everybody was like, wow, something really happened for you there. And it's like, yeah, I, I know something did really happen. It's like, oh, there must be something to this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, many years ago, I like pre pre living in California, for being honest, I was skeptical about psychedelics. But my understanding now is that it's not just what happens in that moment. It's not just like you feel really good and you feel connected to everything. But it's the way in which our brain is changed and which those concepts, those predictions, those neural connections are changed. Can you speak a little bit about that, about kind of what happens after that journey Absolutely. within our brain, within our nervous Absolutely. system? Well, and I would, I would even add to that also the preparation. You know, we, we talk about the, the, the impact of set and setting and also the impact of intention and integration. And so in that, I don't necessarily like the, the dual distinction that's like a therapeutic experience versus a recreational experience because I, I don't necessarily think those two are on opposite sides of the spectrum. But, but perhaps like an experience that one orients to as sacred or sanctified and, and creates a container of intentionality around versus an experience that is not held in that way. Um, not to say that one is better than the other, just that they're going to be different experiences, right? I'm going to have a radically different experience if I travel to Mexico and go do psilocybin work uh, with the Mazatec people than I am if I take mushrooms at a pink concert. Doesn't say that one's better than the other, just that they're different. Uh, so in that, you know, considering considering how one orients to an experience, you know, what is the intention? What is one wanting out of that? And, and what I found, I've done a lot of work as an integration therapist. So folks who are coming to me to help um, orient towards a body of work, they're going to go do somewhere else or, or to digest and, and kind of make sense of what has happened afterwards. Uh, and the, a lot of work can happen before an experience even occurs. In, in Wilderness Rites of Passage and Vision Fast Guiding, they talk about like the journey begins as soon as you put a date on the calendar. It's not when you begin your fast and go up the mountain. Um, and I would say the same thing can be true for a psychedelic experience that when one says yes and sort of crosses that threshold of consent, things start to move internally and psychically around that process. So in that there's, there's the intention process and, and how one prepares for an experience. There's the experience itself. And then there's the integration. Um, I think integration is not well understood or we're still trying to sort out, well, what does that mean? You know, and, and some of this is we, we live in a particular time and place in culture and we are really, um, culturally discombobulated, maybe, or we lack a village and we lack the container of a place-based community that mm, cultures of indigeneity might have had. And, and so we actually have a need for a different kind of integration because we're not embedded in communities that understand rites of passage and integration through a place-based orientation to life. 
my little rampage, I guess, about integration. But uh, in that, you know, I had a teacher once tell me 30% of the work is what happens during the journey itself. and 70% is what happens afterwards. So it's wonderful to go experience yourself as God. You know, that's a delightful experience. It can be terrifying too, but it's a delightful experience and, and can be profoundly revelatory. And then what do you do with that? How do you take the threads of insight and wisdom that come through in these places and weave them out into your life? And, and that can be a very difficult place for some people. Um, it has to be done with a lot of support and uh, attention and it, it becomes a practice or it can become a practice of, you know, how do, how do I take all of this information, all of these understandings or reorientations and, and then ground them into the body and ground them into the world. You know, it's, it's that, that's really where the rubber meets the road to me is, is in the, the work of integration and, and, we see the shadows of the lack of that to me the 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 mm -hmm. stories of people having difficult experiences that spiral into psychosis that's a lack of integration I mean, it may be many other things as well but um you know where where spiritual emergence can become spiritual emergency is is where's the container to hold someone's process um yeah there's also all kinds of bypass that happens. And, and particularly in the psychedelic community, there's a huge shadow around, yeah, I'm going to go drink ayahuasca every weekend and, and my practice is drinking. Okay. That's great. So glad you have such a dedicated relationship to that plant. And, uh, have you ever taken a break? You know, how, how, how is your integration going? Are you living in ceremony or are you, are you taking what you're learning out into the world? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way in which you're letting yourself be changed and doing whatever is needed to truly be changed versus chasing the high, chasing that state of consciousness that perhaps you can only access via that, that plant, that substance? Exactly. Yeah. I feel really curious. You know, these two questions go hand in hand, which is one, like why psychedelics and somatics together, which of course you do more than that, but, um, you know, your, your name implies those are kind of the two core and then also your journey to this work professionally and, and personally. And, and so maybe those are not separate, but if you want to interweave or answer however you'd like. Yeah. Those are, those are not separate for me. I think the, the way I want to start to answer it is, is through a story, which is that when I was 28 years old, you know, in my Saturn returns, for those folks who are into astrological speak, um, I was very blessed to uh, be in a group and a community that was uh, doing work with the indigenous people of the Mazatec, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and so there were several summers where I was traveling to Mexico and, and going to a little town called Lalo de Jimenez and doing psilocybin work in an indigenous context, which is complicated as a white bodied person. And I just put a pin in that. That would be good to circle back to that complexity. But um, <clears throat> I was working with a, a woman named Julieta Casimira, and she was one of the 13 indigenous grandmothers. And while I was working with her that one summer, I, in a psilocybin journey, I had a Kundalini awakening. 
that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But, but for me, it was an experience of having my body moved from the inside out by a force not of my own volition. And it was a profound initiation. I was really lucky in that I had studied the traditions of classical non-dual Tantra. I had a super solid container around me and it, it didn't precipitate itself into psychosis. It was a very empowering process. Um, but what was very clear to me from that moment was that whatever concepts I had about spiritual awakening that involved transcendence and leaving were bullshit. <laughs> and, and that uh, awakening happens in and through the body. Um, you know, I was, I would say already kind of a somatics nerd. I was licensed at that point and, and really apprenticing with the ways of the body in my own life have, have navigated the history of sexual trauma and challenges in disordered eating. And so really bow my head down at, at the altar of the body is a very wise place. Um, but in terms of the intersection between somatics and psychedelics, that experience completely changed my view. I mean, it changed my view about everything. Um, but it, I, it so profoundly shook me that I, I did probably the most disembodied thing I could think of doing, which is I went and I wrote a dissertation and went and got my PhD in, in, in psychology. Um, but I wrote it about Kundalini and, and really reconsidering what it means to awaken or to heal or transform um, through an eco-feminist lens. It was like, oh, you know, I kind of think all these stories we have about waking up and leaving are they were written by a lot of white men <laughs> and a lot of men in power who were invested in keeping their power. And I don't know if I agree with that. And, um, and, and so at the base of my orientation to psychedelic work is um, an orientation to the body as a vessel, um, as an alchemical container for transformation and awakening. You know, that word body, my, one of my mentors, Don Johnson, used to talk about body actually comes from the old Germanic bodig, which was the word that the alchemists used for the brewing vats that they were like making these concoctions in. So, you know, and, and body is differentiated from corpse, where corpse is lifeless. You know, the body is inherently alive. It's this dance of materiality. And then I went like deep into a rabbit hole around feminist quantum theory and this fabulous being, Karen Barad, who writes about, you know, we're really stuck in our Western orientation to matter as something inert or something stagnant. And we know that's not true on some level because everything is vibration and everything's moving all the time, but we don't translate that into like, Oh, this, this body is actually just an interactive mm -hmm. process of becoming that's perpetually unfolding. And to really um, live into that truth is very radical in terms of what it can mean about who we are in the world and how we relate with the other processes of interactive becoming in the world. Um, mm -hmm. So to me, that lens of the body is 
very missing from the field of Western psychotherapy, which is also the field in which psychedelics are emerging or re-emerging into contemporary view out of. Um, you know, <laughs> I have a little bit of a bone to pick with the like, I love the term psychedelic and also it is about so much more than your mind. You know, to reduce it to the mind does us a massive disservice. Um, would much rather we think of it as soul manifesting and then the work is to bring that down into the mm. body or to awaken it through the body. Um, and, and this continued reification of the divorcing of the mind and body is perpetuates harm and injustice and systems of oppression. And, and so it, it's, and not to say we should throw away the mind, you know, the mind is an interesting place, but, but to bring these two into balance with each other. My. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. Mm. All of that, all of that. Yeah, you know, I, I, my sense with many forms of spirituality and spiritual traditions and, and psychedelics is so many people engage with them to have that transcendence, to go beyond to this, maybe this way of, of experiencing the, the world or having a, having a moment of experiencing something greater than themselves. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, if only I could have that all the time. And, and maybe, you know, we have peace of like, that's just not what we're here for in the here and now as, as a human. But, um, but what if we didn't orient to it as this escapism, as this going elsewhere? And I, I you know, for those who aren't watching, I'm, I'm like extending my arms outward of this, like going beyond the self, but this process, both with psychedelics, somatics, spirituality, sensuality, like how can it expand this universe, this ecosystem, this body, this vessel for transformation and be in the here and now. And I love, um, you know, Tantra means many different things to different people, but you know, my, my teacher, um, you know, orients it as, uh, I won't be able to do it justice, but so many of the practices are how to bring in everything, the form, the light, the color into the here and now rather than escape and lose yourself in it. And I just love that, that we can't do that without the body. Yeah. We just can't. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The body is the ground of being. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and for, you know, right now, psychedelics are being researched for specific conditions, which is how the research process is done. And later there may be, you know, I mean, it's being researched for many conditions, but approvals for other conditions. Um, and, and, oh gosh, where am I going with this? I think the thing, yeah, connecting it back to trauma is like, that happens through the body. Mental health conditions, you know, it's not just, oh, and you have a chemical imbalance. <laughs> and, you know, anxiety is only thoughts or depression is only a way of thinking. It is a somatic experience. It's an, a, a, a whole body experience shaped by all of our experiences as a body in this moment of time, in this system, in this culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that that is the missing element or the the unspoken element that we think we ignore the profundity of maybe, um, or the necessity of yeah. where, where, where Buddhist traditions and some of the tantric traditions talk about like, yes, this precious human birth, like you finally arrived in a body. Thank goodness. Like, because this 
is the vehicle that you need to liberate yourself. Now, what do we think liberation is and how do we get there? And that's a whole other rabbit hole. But, but the, if, if freedom exists, it has to exist in a body. That's the experience. There has to be a a lens of experience that is somatic. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these, we call them mental disorders. It's fascinating to me. I'm like, but, but all of that is happening in a body. <laughs> all of that has some kind of somatic posture or um, orientation, yeah. or you know, and and the mind is really the story about it, which is important to unpack and explore. But the the place where one can do work with it is through the lens of somatic experience. Yep. Wow. I want to double click on that? The mind is the story of what's happening in the body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned some of the shadow of the field of somat- or sorry, um, uh, field of psychedelics. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Um, I will preface it with, you know, we we are living in a time where um, the dominant systems that reify power over power under and oppress brown and black bodies and bodies of color and femme bodies and genderqueer bodies, the sort of shadows of the trauma and suffering of all of that, to me, the holographic universe are playing out in the field of psychedelics. So um, in that, I think there are issues that are specific to the field or, or maybe uniquely constellated in the field, but they almost always come back to we're living in a heteronormative system of capitalistic white-bodied supremacy. And how problematic is that? Um, uh, so with that said, you know, there are some really interesting shadows that are presenting themselves. One of the big ones to me is commercialization. Um, and, you know, I was reading an article about now the you know the licensed practitioners that are appearing in Oregon for psilocybin work and and the mind-boggling expense that a single psilocybin journey is and and how and and I, I say that with a um, I don't mean that as a judgment on those practitioners right I, I love that people are feeling called to make that work available and at that price point, how it will be inaccessible to so, so many people who could benefit from this work. You know, there's, there's the patenting of psychedelic substances that have existed in nature for thousands of years. You know, can, can we really trademark like that and, and who profits from that experience? And, and then conversely, you know, how will big pharma feel when when the psychedelic industry starts to threaten the viability of things like traditional SSRIs and big money makers? Um, so I, I think there's an enormous question to me of who's making money and why are they making money and who's benefiting and who has access? There's such a, as things become legalized, a question of accessibility and um financial barriers to receiving the work and then cultural barriers. You know, the the Western medical system has not been historically friendly to 
brown and black bodies. And, and so understandably, there's a lot of trauma there and, and a lot of hesitancy about receiving support from the medical system. So as, as the medical system kind of is the primary place where these substances are offered, there's a lot of limitations there. I would also say I, I have some strong feelings about the Western medical system in general and, and how as a culture, as we've moved towards the medicalization of historically what we would call rites of passage, birthing, dying, um, we've taken these rites and pulled them out of a framework that has a spiritual orientation or a spiritual context for what's happening. And in that, you know, um, uh, I would say created systems that disempower the people who are moving through those rites of passage or have the potential to disempower them. So there's a, a concern in me about the Western materialistic assumption of like science is the answer that underlies the Western medical system and the ways in which that has the potential to cause harm when someone comes in for a psychedelic experience and has a spiritual emergence process, but maybe has a therapist who doesn't believe that spirit is a thing. And, and so the, the interaction of um, a system that denies spirit with experiences that potentiate spiritual orientations to the world seems like a potential issue. Um, just a small one. <laughs> um, you know, beyond that, I think there are questions for me about the inherently individualistic bias of Western psychotherapy. And that right now, psilocybin and MDMA work is going to be happening in, in, in individual containers. And in that individualistic bias, you know, your trauma is your problem, which is not to say that one's individual experience isn't their responsibility, but, but the emphasis on the individual, I think, um, denies the reality of how these interlocking systems of oppression are perpetuating trauma. And, and so I'd love to see at some point, like a movement towards more group work or more community-based models, or, or how do we bring this work into, um, addressing systems change that's sort of a far-reaching mm -hmm. vision mm -hmm. no I, I love it and I mean you know one critique I've heard is sort of like psychedelics should be accessible for anyone and not just those with mental health disorders if it can have these profound effects like those are actually positive for everyone and yes people with PTSD with depression you know extreme phobias like of course those are maybe the most acute and from a from a research fda perspective it makes sense why you start with those and it's very different from saying we think we are going to research this and just say everyone should access this but to your point about these being rites of passage in the in the traditions and the lineages that they're from um and how how beneficial that could be if we had these moments of time where as a community we got together, which, you know, some people do, <laughs> this does exist, um, but it's underground and 
yeah, allowing it to be spiritual or being communal or being broader than you're going to process your trauma, um, which in many ways could address some of the financial barriers because it's a lot different, I imagine, to the cost and the energy to facilitate a group versus one person. And of course, different people, different needs. But what's also interesting is that, you know, capitalism makes it very expensive, those rites of passage. So birth and death, who cares for those people? It's people that underpaid, people who are women, often immigrants. Um, It's hard to make money off of those uh, moments. And yet in capitalism, you know, we try to. And so it's funny that then this type of rite of passage is now being so expensive for people to access legally in a in a quote unquote very intentional therapeutic setting, which of course for folks with trauma, um, you know that's that's can be a, the best way to start. Um, yeah, so thank you for naming all of that, and and just I, I absolutely see how how psychedelic yeah psychedelics is is mirroring all these layers of oppression and systemic issues. Yeah. It's the same shadow. <laughs> yep, just just you know its own flavor of it, and and I see the many of the parallels between the you know weed becoming decriminalized and and legal in many states. Of course, I'm sure we have fewer people imprisoned in the U.S. for psychedelics than than marijuana, but you know also that probably does exist, yeah. which is fascinating. The number of people who are in prison for a substance that is legal in so many places. That's mm-hmm. such a profound example mm-hmm. of the distortions in our systems. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing, you know, we've touched on is the indigenous roots of um, psychedelics and how, you know, <laughs> this difference between how they were probably used for thousands of years and how they're being used now. And, um, you know, I, I'd butcher the story if I tried, but that the origins of of white men from the U.S. going to Mexico and exploring psilocybin and, and making it, um, uh, writing about it and bringing it into the public consciousness in the U.S. But I'm curious if you can talk about, I don't know, whatever you want to speak on this matter, including like f- for folks who are wanting to engage, is there is there a way to to do so in a way that's not you know, not great, basically. Sure. Well, I think there, there's the basic complexity of harm is, is always in the perception of the one who's been harmed. So um, I'm speaking about this from a white cisgendered body that's had a fair amount of privilege in its life. And so in that acknowledging my positionality and, and my potential blind spot, um, I think it's a huge question of how to be in right relationship with these medicines that have so much potential for individual change and to me systems change. And in that, it's going to be an individual question for every single person based on their own body lived experience, training, exposure to other cultures. But I can say for me, I feel very blessed to have been exposed directly to indigenous practice. And, and in that I'm perpetually checking myself against not assuming that indigenous practice is the way, but also really honoring and deeply respecting how 
that the Mazatec culture preserved a lineage of practice in a very intact way for thousands of years in the face of a lot of oppression. And, and, and so there's a way in which like I'm humbling myself in front of that before anything else. Um, you know, it's, it's a question folks have asked me before and, and what does it mean to be in right relationship in a white body or in a body that comes out of a culture that didn't practice with those medicines in that particular way. And I don't know that I have one way as an answer for it, you know, um, I think for folks who are interested in getting into this work, understanding the indigenous lineages of practice related to the medicines one is curious about is an important first step. There are also medicines out there that, that are quote unquote synthetic. MDMA is a synthetic medicine. It doesn't have a lineage of indigenous practice associated with it insofar as I am aware of. Um, LSD is a synthetic, you know, doesn't have a lineage of indigenous practice. So I think it's it's about finding one's comfort level and and then also in the ongoing question of reciprocity. You know, I'm I'm in my work make ongoing reciprocity with the Mazatec people because of the ways that they have supported me. And so we're we're in right relationship. I'm supporting them. It's just kind of how it's gonna go. Um, but again, that's individual to each each person. And do you mean giving money? Or mm-hmm. in what? Yeah, yeah. So there, there are a number of organizations. There's a, a project to preserve the Mazatec cultural heritage that that I've supported in the past, and and then you know specifically um, in relationship with the family who I I stayed with and worked with and got engaged in Mexico with and they celebrated my engagement and and so um, both reciprocity financially and then and then relationship you know just being in relationship together and cultivating connection is is important Mm. Mm, thank you I appreciate that answer Mm. you know well I have a slight curiosity of what is that community or the people you've interacted with how do they feel about the way the U.S. people in the U.S. are using psychedelics, researching it? Like, which I'm, you know, it's changed so rapidly. So, um, but I'm curious their point of views. Sure. I mean, I don't on a level. I don't think I could speak for them in that. Yeah. There's, I think, a diversity of viewpoint, and uh, all the way from like a desire to share things openly and to have that knowledge base spread to, um, you know, the, the feeling that their traditions are being appropriated and, and everywhere in between. Um, so, mm-hmm. and, and that, that is the complexity that lies at the heart of the question of how to be in right relationship when, you know, you might walk down the street and one person might be like, great, I'm so glad you're here. And like, yeah, let's connect. And then another person might not feel that way at all. And, and mm-hmm. so how to hold that complexity in a good way, that's the big question. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think complexity is a lot easier to hold when we have a relationship with our body and sensation and can feel more than one thing and acknowledge its wisdom and truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm feeling curious about pivoting the conversation to getting practical Sure. And about, you know, so maybe folks are like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm ready to explore psychedelics. But they live in the United States. What, how do they go about um, doing that in the this year of 2023 in which um, ketamine is the only one that is FDA approved? What are their options to do it in you know, the spectrum of perhaps legal to, you know, the more kind of underground travel, like, like, what does that array of options look like? Yeah. As you said, ketamine is a, is a great option, um, because it is legal in 50 states and, and prescribable and, um, ketamine assisted therapy is doing all kinds of interesting things. And, and there's a wide array of trainings and providers out there. I would say not all providers are created equal, you know, Um, but it is more accessible than a lot of the other medicines. People sort of put cannabis in a different class, but I would say that cannabis, when used intentionally, can be profoundly psychotropic in, in how it interacts with the system. So if someone is wanting to explore that, there are, there are, you know, cannabis breathwork sessions you can join online and and ways of of working with that medicine in in ways that I don't think we consider because we orient to it as a recreational drug, not a sacred medicine. Um, Beyond that, if one is wanting legal access in the United States, you're somewhat limited to clinical trials. Now, there are a lot of clinical trials happening both on the East and the West Coast. So getting curious about where one lives and what might be close by as as a way to be a part of the movement or to have an experience. Um, There is travel, you know, there are countries outside the US where psychedelics are more legally available. So places like Jamaica, Amsterdam, uh, parts of Portugal, Costa Rica, there's there's psychedelic tourism, which has its own shadow, I would add, Um, you know, and, and again, like, not all providers are created equal or have an equal um, capacity to support these experiences. So um, not to sound like too much of a wet blanket, but, but because of, not because of, there's a huge lack of regulation in terms of providers making these medicines available or uh, a lack of standardization, not to say that standardization is going to keep people from causing harm, because really it's about internalized systems of oppression. Um, but in that, one of the shadows of the psychedelic movement is looking at psychedelics as a magic pill and looking at those offering psychedelics as gurus. And I would like to deconstruct that pedestal and and caution anyone listening to this that Psychedelic providers are not gurus. They do not have all the answers. And if someone tells you that they're a guru, I would go the other way. Um, uh, So in that being really, really discerning about who holds space um, because Mm -hmm. their training, their background, their unconscious assumptions, their unprocessed trauma is all going to be a part of the field. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think any type of therapeutic modality requires discernment about who you're working with. But when your state of consciousness is so altered and you are so open and receptive and who the person is who's guiding it can so dramatically influence it, um, there needs to be, you know, big time discernment. And there have been, you know, documented um, abuses of power and not, you know, not everyone is doing that, but it's important to, to really be real about you know, not everyone maybe has the highest degree of ethical standards. So I'm curious, are there specific things that people can look for when looking for a guide, looking for a retreat? Um, you know, for example, ketamine, can, you can even do it telehealth. So, right. you know, there's a whole spectrum of what it could look like. What are the types of things that that someone should be like, oh, I want to check for this and I want to check for that? Yeah. Um. I mean, word of mouth, right? Like trusted referrals, I think are are usually a helpful first step rather than I Google searched, you know, ayahuasca in Costa Rica and found this place that has five star reviews. Um, that being said, when when one is evaluating something, considering things like, you know, who are the facilitators? How are they trained? How you know what's their ongoing relationship to awareness of their shadow as it plays out across power differentials. These are the questions I would be asking. Uh, how trauma informed are they? What's their somatic training? What do they do if there's a medical emergency? I think it's a question a lot of folks don't want to ask because no one wants to consider the worst case scenario. But but it's um, it's good to be informed in your consent and to understand that there are risks and medical emergencies do happen. And so if you're in an underground context, mm -hmm. being really clear about what that would be. And if you're in an above ground context, also knowing what that would be. If you're three hours out in the jungle, I guess I'm harping on Costa Rica today, but if you're three hours out in the jungle, you know, what happens if you have a medical emergency? What's the plan? So there's sort of the, you know, what's the care of the body um, or how do they orient to taking care of the body when one is in these altered states? Um, for me, and again, this is just me, you know, what's the rupture and repair process? Uh, so if, if there is a rupture in the relational field, how does that get held? So then I start to ask questions about, you know, is that facilitator embedded in a circle of accountability? Who do they, do they receive supervision mm -hmm. and consultation or are they a solo operator? Um, and, and mm -hmm. if they do receive supervision and consultation, you know, are they within a network of other beings who can provide them reflection about their shadow material? Right. Yeah. Mm, those are great considerations. And that rupture and repair piece is so essential because, yeah, just the, the inherent power dynamic and the inherent vulnerability, even if it's a tiny rupture, being able to process and repair versus completely losing faith in this person in this process perhaps in this substance um and how a good rupture and repair process can mean more growth positive transformation versus you know it really turning it in the other direction absolutely well and back to sort of deconstructing the, the image of the guide or the facilitator as perfect you know i i I hold that human shadow is inevitable, that we all have it, and it, it shows up in relational fields. And and so instead of being like, yeah. no, we're never going to have a rupture, 
you know, being like, okay, at, at some point we'll probably have a rupture. And here's the process that we'll use to help move that through, to come back into relationship, to restore our connections. And, and here are the ways that, you know, this person is committed if they're in the power over seat to metabolizing their role in those scenarios and their own shadow to, to not perpetuate that harm in the future. Not to say that the person in power over mm-hmm. is always responsible, but they have their, the, yeah. the the onus is on them to be embedded within a network. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to have that process rather than someone who's needing the process, asking for it, and there is no, no process. Right. Yeah. And okay, so that's kind of how to vet how, how, you know, what your options are. Let's say someone is, you know, going to have a psychedelic journey and, you know, they're, they're listening to this. They're like, oh yeah, the body that's okay. That's something I hadn't, wasn't considering before. And maybe they're working with a therapist, whatever the situation is. Um, what are somatic tools and practices that folks can use not just during the journey, but certainly, you know, yes, please talk about that. But during that intention setting, during the, the integration, how can they work with the body to support themselves and kind of get the most out of it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I could boil it down to really great self-care. And I, I mean that uh, not quite in the like self-care industry of Instagram that feeds capitalism, but, but self-care as, you know, how do you bring your body into a state of ease and flow and, and a sense of deep connection with yourself and your own material? Um, and, and like an orientation of compassion and curiosity and just how do you keep showing up to that in in the preparation process you know there are specific depending on the medicine someone is working with if someone is headed into an ayahuasca session there are going to be specific sort of dietary limitations specific bodily care pieces that are medically really important to to be aware of as as I have supported people as an integration therapist, we talk a lot about like, can you get outside to nature? Can you go outside and feel your connection with the earth and and be curious about what do you want from this experience? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? Um, so move, whatever movement practices support sort of that kind of interpsychic connection. Um, breath work, yoga, dance, everybody's a little bit different, but, but what supports you in feeling connected Um, in that eating like grounding, delicious, nourishing food, um, you know, taking baths, um, rubbing your body with delicious smelling oils, kind of everybody's a little bit different, but, but finding what works for you. Um, I would say many of those things are also true for during a psychedelic experience. Maybe not so much the eating because that has a tendency to make folks nauseous, but, but there can be such a profound experience of appreciation for the body. Um, particularly if the body has been a site of trauma or challenge or, um, is, has a lot of intergenerational stories about limitation tied up in it to, to be in one's body and to just be like, wow, I have this amazing vehicle. You know, we 
so many of us have such a negative self narrative. So to to explore positive self talk in those spaces can be very profound. Gentle stretching, gentle movement, allowing oneself to explore. Those are those are all aspects. Um, and then I would say the most useful tool, somatic tool, is, during an experience is breath. Um, that fundamentally it is all um, a breathing practice and that breath is the tool to use when things get hard or challenging or difficult and, and breath can be used to move into places and through places. And, um, mm. you know, psyche Psyche means soul, but it also means breath. Yeah. And can you speak more specifically on how someone could use breath? The first place one could come to is an awareness of breath. Um, you know, we can, in the same way we can get lost in our minds in our daily life, we can get lost in our minds in the psychedelic experience and, and down a rabbit hole of something very unpleasant that we don't really want to be exploring. And, and so in, in a moment of challenge or a moment of needing resource, you know, can you come back to an awareness of your breath? Can you come back to feeling the breath as it moves in and out of the body? Can you invite your system into taking a deep breath um, to, to just make contact with, you know, the, the breath is always in that oscillation of in and out and in and out and, and sort of to reattune to one's own innate rhythm um, or to um, harmonize with it or to adjust it. You know, some, some folks, I think in psychedelic sessions are really exploring, you know, what does it feel like if I'm exploring different kinds of breath, you know, in yoga, there's the, the lion's face pose where you stick out your tongue and you go, what does that feel like, you know, and, and, and playing with these, these ways of moving energy in and out of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Breath is powerful. And I mean, breath alone can be, um, Mm. Would would psychotropic be the right word? Or yeah. consciousness altering? Yeah, yeah. And even just um, bringing your awareness there—that is a somatic intervention. Mm-hmm. That's can be profoundly calming and grounding and stabilizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. Mm. Yeah. So with all the excitement and research about um, psychedelics, it's easy to, to see it as this magic pill that is just going to cure you of anxiety and depression and PTSD and just instantly transform your life for the better. And I'm curious what your take on that is and maybe what is a more balanced perspective to have that's going to be supportive of folks who are exploring this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think psychedelics awaken us to our power of choice. That's one of the really profound things they can illuminate for us is how much we are at choice in terms of how we bring ourselves into the world in any given moment. And so in that, they're really fabulous illuminators of where things may or may not be working so well for us. But, and we are at choice about how we take that kind of illumination and walk it out into our lives. And I would also couch that systemically in, um, I, there's a big movement out there of psychedelics are going to save the world. And I'm, I'm like, maybe, (laughs) 
you know, maybe like if, if we choose to embed them in systems that truly value all of life and rupture and repair and transformative justice and include considerations of the mystical and the non-ordinary, then maybe. Um, so, so also to acknowledge that uh, they might illuminate wonderful things for us and we may still be embedded in systems of oppression and still navigating that in a day-to-day -day way. And hopefully we can create more of a sense of resource and capacity in navigating those systems. And also that the reality, the global landscape is quite dire at the moment. So to, to situate one's expectations within the reality of what's happening in the world, maybe this is what I would offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to, just to kind of ask a follow-up is, you know, which you've kind of already alluded to, but what, what would need to be possible for psychedelics to support massive social change? What a great question. <laughs> the first answer that comes is like, well, we should put LSD in the water, but that's not true because then we would be dosing people without their, their consent. And that would be re-traumatizing. Um, it's a great question of what needs to happen for psychedelics to potentiate system change. I, my sense is that some of the first steps in that, um, are to dislodge in our institutions that are studying these medicines, assumptions of the, um, superiority of scientific materialism and to start to include research methods, knowledge production methods that include other ways of knowing, particularly indigenous knowledge systems. Um, and within that, with the training of psychedelic therapists to dislodge the supremacy of the mind over the body and include somatics um, and social justice to ground all of this in a framework that understands that the work that really needs to be happening is is that of reweaving the networks of the human world and the non-human world and and so to put all of this within landscapes of social and transformative justice mm. just a small small few things we need to do you know just a totally doable to-do list in the next like yeah. few years it's, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah which is you know it's yeah it kind of goes back to like, wow, it's so exciting that that MDMA is closest to being FDA approved. Psilocybin is, is not far behind, thanks to really rigorous research, especially by MAPS. Um, and like, wow, what could be possible if these were more widespread, but in this community oriented way, in this way that truly allows us to integrate and be open to to actually changing and not just addressing our mental health challenges that are often caused by systems of power and yet we still have to participate in those systems yeah 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 <laughs> well is there anything else you want to share about anything that we've touched on or haven't touched on that you feel is relevant to to this conversation hmm. I think, I think we've been very comprehensive, actually. There's nothing we poking in my awareness that's like, oh, we didn't talk about that. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how folks could learn more from you or work with you if they so desire? You can always come get a PhD at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the Integral and Transpersonal Psychology Department. 
I teach critical courses there on psychedelics, so not, not the training of the psychedelic guide, but um, really looking at psychedelics, the field of psychedelics as a humanity. So you can find me there. Um, you can also find me in my private practice. Uh, I offer consultations mostly to organizations who are embedded in the field of psychedelics, but occasionally we'll offer singular consultations for folks as they're in particular transformational moments in their lives. And, and I also offer workshops and teaching and uh, some of those are online and some of those are in person in the Bay Area. So you can find me at my website, which is valeriamccarroll.com. It's the easiest way to get a hold of me or on Instagram. Thank you. And I believe you have a somatic practice for us. I do. I do. So this is a very simple grounding and clearing practice. Um, it is ideal to do when you are not operating a vehicle and you're able to really let your attention and your awareness go inward for a few minutes. Um, you can certainly do it standing up. You can do it seated. You can do it lying down. Uh, but somewhere where you'll be undisturbed for a few moments and, and can really focus on yourself. Mm. So, as always with any somatic practice, um, reminding us that we're operating out of the ground of consent and that if you are listening to this, you know best what your body needs in this moment, in this time and place. And, and so everything that I am offering is an invitation, not a command, even though I may be using my, my best yoga teacher directive language. Um, fundamentally, you're the expert and the sovereign on your own soma and your own nervous system. And, and so always listening to that before deciding to engage with what I'm offering. So in that, with that said, um, if it feels right to you, uh, allowing your eyes to close and finding um, a position that feels comfortable to you. If it can be upright, that's great. And if that's not available, lying down on the floor is always, always another option, but Letting the spine be long, wherever you are. And saying hello to your breath. Notice the qualities of the breath as it moves in and out of the body. Maybe there are some small movements rocking the pelvis from side to side or forwards and backwards. Maybe there are pops rolling the shoulders and the neck out. until you find a place where the spine could be like a string of pearls. Each vertebrae just gently stacked over the next. Mm. 
head and neck centered over your chest, centered over your belly, centered over your pelvis. Notice the places where your body makes contact with the ground beneath you. Breathing. Now in the center of your heart space, allow to appear in your mind's eye a blue point of light. Call this a blue bindu in tantric physiology. And as you breathe in, you feed this point of light with your breath till it grows and expands in 360 directions. Filling your chest with blue crystalline light. Letting the blue bindu just be there. Bring your attention down to the base of your pelvis. The tailbone. There in your mind's eye, allowing a red point of light to appear. And if your body wants to move as these lights that we're working with are in the body, just let it move. I have this idea that somatic practice or meditation means sitting still. Breathe into the red point of light. Letting it grow bigger. Fill your whole pelvis and low belly with red crystalline light. And finally, bringing your attention up to the center of the head. Allowing a white point of light to appear. Use your breath to feed that white point of light. Magnifying it. Amplify it with your awareness. Mm -hmm. 
white light stacked over blue light stacked over red light. And letting that visualization rest in your awareness. Inhale deeply and gather up anything you want to clear, any stagnation. And on your next exhale, opening the mouth slightly, exhaling out with a sound. Cleansing and clearing. as though these lights inside of you could just burn away anything that wasn't serving you anymore. Taking two more of those cleansing breaths at your own pace, inhaling fully, exhale with a When you feel complete, notice how the body has shifted just in these few minutes. Notice if anything feels changed. This interactive process of becoming that we are. And begin to Make small movements with your fingers and toes. Rolling the neck out. And stretch the arms overhead. Your own time, your own way. <clears throat> Fluttering the eyes open. Take just a minute to take in your space. Orient. As you feel ready. Big yawns are a good sign. <laughs> Thank you. That practice and this conversation has been so wonderful. It's been such a delight. It's great to connect with you and chew on all of these things together. All right, that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed what you just heard, found it valuable, and want to keep exploring with me, please click follow. To help others learn about this, make sure to give me a five-star rating, write a review, and share it with all your people. To learn more about my work, go to JacquelineExplains.com and sign up for my email list so that you can receive life-changing somatic practices in your inbox. See you next week.